At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everyone and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me as always is my loyal co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. We were inundated, Walker, with quality questions. We sent out the call. We said we were going to do questions two weeks from last week. You'll notice that it is not two weeks from last week, but we are getting started early so as to be able to address all of them. So this is going to be the first of two of the third iteration of the Omnibus Questions period, and thus we are labeling it Charlie Alpha, and next week we will follow up with Charlie Bravo. Such is the way of things, and such is my devotion to the NATO phonetic alphabet. So there's still time to submit more questions, and if we find them worthy of address and interesting, or at least of interest to the broader audience, which may or may not be the same thing, we will be able to address them next week. But this week we will get to work on addressing your burning questions. So Mark... The game we played exactly one year ago is Reiner Knizia's Babylonia is going to be featured in this week's Aurus. Yes, the as yet unnamed retrospective intro segment for this week is Babylonia. Our views on Babylonia remain at least somewhat controversial because amongst many of the Reiner Knizia fan base, Babylonia is regarded as one of his very finest tile laying games which I think is an exaggeration. I think it is very good, but far from near his best. Yeah, I haven't had any super urge to bring it to the table. We haven't had, I haven't had very many opportunities to do so, but his other contributions, I think I would choose far more recently than Babylonia. We've played it a couple times since we reviewed it. Uh, I have anyway. And Woogie made an interesting comment. He, he noted that the scoring just feels less satisfying in Babylonia than a lot of other tiling games. 
designed by Rainer Knizia. And I, I, I have to agree, you know, typical scores end up in the triple digits. It's just this incrementalism of individual placements here and there. And it's just not nearly as satisfying as any of the clever interlocking systems or of the unitary focus of a lot of his other tiling designs. Which, again, th- these are these criticisms have to be understood in context. I really like Babylonia. But it's not up to the genius level of <laughs> Reiner Kinsey's other tiling games. Which is to say, it's not among the best tiling games ever made. Agreed. So that was Babylonia, published by Ludo Nova in 2019, designed by Reiner Knizia. Moving on from the Aeris, we're going to talk about the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, I played a game that you left for me, and you've talked about it already, so I won't go too long about it. Switch and Signal by David Thompson. Now, this came out quite a while ago, and it was put out by Cosmos, but as a great sort of either solo or two-player puzzle game and it's just it is just my jam mark there's this app that i usually put on my phone every so often it's sort of like an air traffic controlling app and you have this island with different runways and all these planes start flooding in from the sides and they all have to land on particular runways and so you're tracing these flight paths on the screen and you have to make sure they don't collide and this is very much what you're doing in switch and signal There's these colored cities, and they all have two cubes, and they all have to get to Marseille. On the other side of the board, there's another map. I haven't tried it yet. But you're playing these cards to switch the paths of all these trains that go different speeds, and you're trying to make sure they don't collide into stop signs or into each other or into the towns because only one train can be per town. Great card system. Easy to teach. Very clever, you know, uh, switch systems. I like everything about it. I'm going to be playing it solo tomorrow. It'll be fun. I really like how you have to channel the bad stuff. Normally, again, there's this standard structure, especially of your simpler co-op games, where bad stuff happens and then you do your actions, bad stuff happens and then you do your actions. In Switch and Signal, that's kind of put on its head because... The trains, the analogy to air traffic control is very good. There's this chaotic influx of of action. But the thing is, you can't just stem the tide. You have to leverage that chaotic influx so that it can work for you. Otherwise, you are definitely going to run out of time. Because in the early game, you start thinking, okay, how can I just make sure that nothing crashes into each other? But right around the mid-game, there's this switch, no pun intended, where you start to figure, wait a minute, am I going to be able to get everything done? And then you start wanting the trains to move with their own accord. You're willing to go fast and break things. And I really do appreciate the fact that that serves to upend the the kind of pandemic formula that we've been doing so satisfyingly, but nonetheless so repetitively for about 15 years. That is Switch and Signal. Released quite some time ago. Give me a break. I got to play Cryptid Urban Legends. This is a review copy sent to us by the publisher. This is designed by Hal Duncan and Ruth Viviers, who are the two people who also designed Cryptid for Osprey Games. Cryptid was a deduction game, and you might be asking yourself, is Cryptid Urban Legends a deduction game? No, it is not. Is it thematically appropriate? No, it is not. Now, some people, Walker included have derided Ares Expedition as a sort of cynical cash grab for the branding of Terraforming Mars. And so the the assumption was that Stronghold was just trying to leverage the branding so as to get a different game out the door and move units. I defended it on the basis that you could still see a lot of the design influence from Terraforming Mars into Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition, and so I thought it was kind of okay. Here, I 
kind of am in the same boat as all the people who criticize this as a crass marketing move because Cryptid Urban Legends doesn't feel like Cryptid at all. And the thematic in integration, such as it is in Urban Legends, is borderline incoherent. It's the kind of thing where you explain the theme of the game and people are like, wait, what? So the Cryptid can progress through the city by virtue of the sensors that the scientist left? That is the means by which they do it? And what sensor are they sensors then? You say, uh, just stop asking questions. I can't explain any of this. What's this evidence that's being left behind? What is the cryptid doing to the evidence? Is it destroying evidence? Is it collecting? Uh, stop asking questions. Let's just get through this. That's the start of the problems with cryptid urban legends. I've read the design, des- the, the design diary of this game, and it is fascinating in what they decided to do. It was originally a hidden movement style game in the classic tradition of Scotland Yard or Fury of Dracula or any of the kinds of games of that ilk. But the question eventually evolved into, can you make a hidden movement game where nothing is actually hidden, where all the data is visible? And the answer is yes. But then the follow-up question is, why would you? Because what it ends up feeling like is a positional abstract. It's not just by virtue of the incoherent theming, but also by virtue of just the way the game proceeds mechanistically. Long story short, there are these colored cubes. And the, the arrangement of the color cubes will determine how well the cryptid is able to spread itself. And this is a two-player asymmetric game. The scientist wants the cryptid not to spread itself out. The cryptid wants to spread out as far as possible. And so you're playing these cards to just move colored cubes around to try to make sure that either they're in neat little patterns, if you're the cryptid, or not in neat little patterns if you're the scientist. That's it. That's the game. And I honestly felt that it was extremely procedural and uninspired. I think better theming might have helped. I think it might just be an ill-conceived design ambit. Hidden movement games tend to be more along the lines of deduction games anyway, And part of the joy of hidden movement games is the sense of being hunted, the sense of cat and mouse, the sense of the unknown, the unexplored, the the bold, risky move, the gambit, the dashing around a corner hoping to find something. All of that is gone here. And again, what you have is kind of sort of a positional abstract, desperately trying to pretend as though it's something else. And I found it very unsatisfying. It was incredibly quick. It's easy to teach and very, very quick to play. Uh, I just didn't feel the need to go back to it. And I have to wonder, especially given that in the design diaries, there was never any mention on the part of the designers of this trying to be a cryptid tie-in. If this was the kind of thing, this is just drunk speculation, mind you, the kind of thing that I tend to discourage in others, but permit for myself because I am as ever a raving hypocrite. I wonder if this is the kind of thing where the publisher insisted. Who knows? But the fact that I'm left asking these questions and maybe thinking that that is the most interesting part of the game is certainly telling. And so that was my experience with Cryptid Urban Legends. I'll jump ahead to something that ties in. It's called Horrified American Monsters. This was designed by Michael Mulvill and put out by Ravensburger. This was a uh, review copy given us to, to us by Lion Rampant. And when I read the rules, I thought it was a very heavy family game where the monster would say you need to go here and do that. And that's what your actions let you do. You move and you did an action. So I thought it was just going to be very procedural. It's okay. Now we go over here and we do this. And it is not that at all. It is very interesting because you have all these different monsters that you can have in the game. And the hook is they all have their own sort of mechanisms that you have to do where Bigfoot, you want to be in his space. So he doesn't roll dice because he's a way 
because just uh, when he rolls dice, if he gets a special ability, it advances your turn marker or your like sort of doom track. And so if you're in a space, he doesn't get to roll those dice. We also had the Chupacabra uh, where uh, all these goats kept turning up all over town and he and you have to get all the goats to a certain area or he starts <laughs> eating all the animals. That was very interesting. And they all have different sort of defeating conditions where you have to have so many value of items or so many color of items or very interesting mechanisms. And I'm looking forward to going back into it. We got destroyed, unfortunately, which was great because I would hate to win my first cooperative game. It would have taken a lot off of it. We played right up to normally. You can only play against two monsters, but we went against the full three. Uh, the Bigfoot, like I said, not only do you have to, should you start in a space, but he leaves footprints around. And then... Uh, as you pick up the footprints, you're turning over these pitcher tiles, and it's the classic, you know, Bigfoot pitcher that you always see. And then you have to play like a slidey game and get them all in the right position. And if he <laughs> does some things that makes you flip the tiles back over. And anyway, all so they all have their own little mechanisms, and you can play with different monsters. I really enjoyed it. That's Horrified American Monsters. You know, that's reminding me of something I said about Crescent Moon and something I it leads to a natural segue of this next game. We really are living in a post-root world where I think designers are exploring different ways to use asymmetry and if and ways to do it in an approachable, internalizable way. Because that's often the challenge. You don't want things to sprawl too much. At that point, you've got mechanisms piled upon mechanisms. And I finally got to play Massive Darkness 2 Hellscape. Now... Full disclaimer, this is a dumb dice chucker, but I really liked it. Here's why. <laughs> uh, first of all, they really upped the sense of threat of a lot of the different monsters. There are a lot of unblockable hits that large mobs can inflict on you, especially if you engage with them carelessly. It is also the case that that loot system that you've always liked, whereby the mobs always show up with loot and employ it against you, that is still there, and they have done a very clever thing with the distribution of the loot in that most of the weapons you'll get in the game will be carried by monsters. Monsters only show up with weapons, they don't show up with armor. So the specific situation that we would sometimes end up with, where the first monster that spawns has a good default defense stat and happens to spawn with a good suit of armor, well, they're not really going to be taking damage from your piddly little starting weapons. So here, the variability is in what weapon they're wielding against you, and as a consequence, most of the treasure that you find lying around tends to be the defensive items and the utility items. If you want a better weapon, you have to go take it from the hands of your dead enemies. Charlton Heston style. And I really appreciated that. So there's these subtle little changes around the margins that really serve to differentiate it from the first Massive Darkness. It's still, at the end of the day, a relatively dumb dice chucker. But the part that's clever and really kind of cute is the asymmetry that they introduced in terms of the different character classes. So they really upped the ante on this one. I played as the rogue and a paladin. I, I basically played two heroes when playing solo. The Rogue plays a bag-building game. As they level up, they get better action tokens into their bag. And so they're curating their sets of actions. At the top of the round, they get to pull three tokens from their bag, and you can use those tokens for any kind of action you want, but the tokens will have a bonus if associated with a particular kind of action. This can be very, very simple, like this attack action gives you a bonus die. If you use it for movement, that'll be wasted. If you use it for anything else, for a rest action or what have you, then you don't get the bonus. But if you use it for an attack action, you get the bonus. All the way to specific trap-diffusing actions or actions that if used in a certain way will generate another action on top of that. And so what you end up with is a jack-of-all-trades who's good at whatever they do, but not necessarily reliably. 
And I think that suits being a rogue just perfectly. They tend to be generalists, and they're not particularly reliable classes. You can't definitively say, well, next turn you have to go kill that. It's like, well, maybe I'll be in a good position to kill them. Maybe I won't. And since this isn't a game that needs a lot of forward planning anyway, in Massive Darkness 2, that's just fine. The Paladin, on the other hand, as a utility tank character consecrates certain zones, and anyone in that zone gets to leverage certain abilities. And as they level up, those abilities get to change and so forth. And so their fundamental action system isn't changed the way the rogues is, but they nonetheless play with the map in a way that I found surprisingly interesting. And of course, then it's a question of having different players being able to leverage their abilities in a a team-based way. Playing solo, two-handed, I found that reasonably satisfying. Now, there's a lot of sprawl involved. Uh, the setup and maintenance and the different the number of different tokens involved is, shall we say, ample. I was tempted to say massive, but I'm not a hack walker. I'm not going to engage in hacky wordplay like that. We're professionals. We are professionals. And I that's one of the reasons why I sprung for the game organizer. Because at the start of the game, you have literally eight different decks of cards that need to be shuffled and set up. Who's got table space for that, For that, especially if you're playing solo? That that will kill you when playing solo, being able to reach all those different cards. You practically have to take up a, a stand up and take a walk just to get to the monster deck. No. So I sprung for the organizer. I'm going to have to put the tokens in a play It's a whole thing. Just keeping it manageable for one player is a bit of a challenge, and that's not even counting the minis. So... Can I recommend Massive Darkness 2 Hellscape? Not really. I mean, it's really expensive. It sprawls like mad. At the end of the day, it's still just a dumb dice chucker. I have an endless enthusiasm for this kind of dumb dice chucker, especially when they do something clever. And I really do like the miniatures. I will give a a minor shout out to Simon's artistic development. They've kind of grown with the, the hobby a little bit. I will point out the Barbarian in particular. The Barbarian is a massive, hulking, chubby woman who's dressed appropriately. You don't have the conventionally attractive chainmail bikini type. This is a person who looks like she could rip your head off if she wanted to, and also that she's not particularly interested in looking pretty for the eyes of the male gaze. And so I really appreciate developments like that. And so it's a welcome change from how things used to be, because dungeon crawls, as a rule, tend to be among the worst offenders in terms of art presentation like that. And non-standard body types, especially for women, characters and when they're dressed appropriately well appropriately i'm not suggesting that any level of this armor and this amount of skulls and pauldrons is what you would call functional (laughs) i mean appropriately in the sense of representation of the hobby at any rate uh i do not recommend massive darkness to hellscape but i will happily play it and i will look forward to going back to it again this is very very much a personal kind of uh (laughs) (laughs) recommendation and slant. And so over the course of the coming week, I will be involved in the non-trivial labor of ripping open the 72 expansion boxes and desperately attempting to organize it in some way such that my sanity does not quail and crumble from the pressure. And that is Massive Darkness 2 Hellscape by Alex Oltiano and Marco Portugal, two in-house developers from Simon who've done a lot of work on various Simon projects. Uh... You know, whether it's smog, whether it's a whole... Basically, anything that Michael Chanel doesn't work on, you can probably guess that that Ultiano and Portugal will be involved in. And this time, I think they've done a reasonably good job of slightly making more engaging a standard stupid dungeon crawl where you level up and hit things with very large slabs of metal and or wood. So you get in the campaign book at all, Mark. Now there's a campaign. There already was a campaign book. 
one of the reasons why Massive Darkness 1 was so critically panned and why so many users hated it so much was because as a stretch goal, they put in a campaign because that was just the very cusp of everything's got to have a campaign. And backers like, could there be a campaign mode? And the designer said, I guess. And then they put together arguably one of the worst campaign modes ever made. And then people were like, this game sucks. The campaign doesn't work. And everyone and and most of the people who like Massive Darkness were like, what did you expect? Don't play the campaign mode. Well, I'm looking forward to trying it again. And looking forward to seeing the trailer pull up when you bring it back. <laughs> well, Mark, you and I like Mind Clash games, some more than others. Their newest one is called Perseverance, Castaway Chronicles. And they did something, I, I think you could actually use the word revolutionary here, Mark. Right? Two games in one box that use the same components that are supposed to be, uh, they're tied together thematically, but play completely differently. I haven't played the second one yet, but I did get to play episode one. And what's happening in episode one is that your ship has crashed onto this mysterious island. And guess what? There's dinosaurs and they start eating your people. And much like most post-apocalyptic games, you you just can't get along with the other people, Mark. You can't group together and make defenses so everyone can live. No, you have to make your own <laughs> separate villages and defend those and 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 screw everyone else. So it has this in, in, uh, dice mechanism where there's a bunch of neutral dice and everyone has one of their own color dice in the initial pool. Then there are actions that let you put more of your color dice into the pool and This is bad for the other players because they have to pay resources in order to use your dice. And you're also paying resources to turn the dice to uh, icons that you want. So then it opens up this decision space. Do I want to use my own dice so I don't have to spend resources to use somebody else's? Or do I want to use the neutral dice to make sure only my dice are left so they have to spend resources? Or do I use my dice because they are counted for sort of a area majority for these different locations because you want to get votes because there's this big victory point payoff. So there's all of this going on. There's tons of other things. There's this very, uh, you know, putting out soldiers and, you know, these dinosaur onslaughts and getting victory points that way and different ways you can trigger. Like, I think, I think you do not have to go for the big payoff at the end of every turn. I think there are strategies that you can employ that you can get victory points in other ways. So I'm going to play it. I did get to play it twice, but the first game was definitely a learning game. The second game definitely played much differently because we're much more into putting out the troops and defending against the dinosaurs in the first game. So not very many settlements were built as this you know, every time you build a settlement, you're covering up these bonuses that you're going to get. And that also gives you more value for your area majority control at the end. There's these missions that you can go on. So that's this interesting two-step two step process where you need action efficiency. So you sort of put the troops into your pool. And before you deploy them out to the battlefield, you could send them on these other sort of side missions, right? Because once you put them out on the board, they're locked there till they till they unfortunately demise. So you can sort of, you know, wait a turn and do this side mission and then deploy them, right? So it's a very action efficiency type game. I enjoyed it. Not as much as I like their other contributions, but 
I'm looking forward to trying the second part. And what I really want to know is how there are these other books that are going to sort of combine the two that will, the one game will have consequences on for the second game. I'm very confused. Initially, I thought that the game was one where you play as the dinosaurs and you scored based on the number of limbs you were able to cut, uh, to cut off. Hence the name of the game, Perseverance. Well, I thought it was going to be like Francis Drake, right? And I thought the actual name of the game was Persevere Rants. Anyway, that was the vote I had, the joke I had in the first game. But anyway, this was designed by everyone in the Mind Clash team. Richard Amon, Thomas Van Jinst, Jinst, Victor Peter, Wolf Panek, and David Turtsey. I'm sure did the solo mode for Perseverance. Played a game of Core World's Empires. This was review copy sent to us by the publisher. This is the pseudo-sequel to Core Worlds, one of our favorite deck-building games that was published by Stronghold. Andrew Parks, the designer of Core Worlds, got the rights from Stronghold through his own publishing outfit, Quixotic Games, kickstarted a worker-placement pseudo-sequel along with his co-designer, Christopher Guild. It's not as good as Core Worlds. It's very similar to Core Worlds in that the game is about serially massing a set of military strength, deploying it against various worlds to conquer them, and then trying to build your military strength up again for the next conquest. And there's an issue of timing and sometimes going after worlds that your opponent has and trying to manipulate the flow of military resources and planet resources in that way. The problem is, is that it suffers really badly in comparison to Core Worlds, for one thing. One of the joys of Core Worlds is you get to draft a unit, and it's a cool unit, and it gets to do something neat. Here in uh, Core Worlds Empires, you spend most of your time messing around with basic units, and the only way they get upgraded is you play a card that temporarily upgrades them for the sake of this battle. And it turns what was a relatively simple process in Core Worlds... I buy this card, I then play this card, I use this card, that is how I do, that is how I use units, into a process of, okay, well, first you need to get the unit, then the unit has to be with the right ambassador. You send out the ambassador to where you want to go fight, then the fight starts, and then you might play a card to turn the unit in the... Uh, unit you actually want, then the unit might get destroyed and then you have this card that keys with a certain unit so you have to go get another unit and start the process over again. And in that sense in many of the ways that it was different from Core Worlds, it felt a whole lot like busy work. It just felt like, well we could probably have the same effect and the same feeling game in a worker placement setup, but let's introduce some extra steps and more lattice work to what was going on. And I didn't really feel that that added much to the system. Furthermore, there was also a kind of a fragile economy to Core Worlds Empires. The there's a whole bunch of different upgrades you can get. A whole bunch of different types of units that you can purchase, but again, they're just basic stat uh, units. This one is 2-1. Oh, well, this one's 1-2. One, okay, these are the different units that are available. But the way you get them is through action spaces. Action spaces are key to planets, and you are going to see, especially in small player count games, a small fraction of the total available unit spaces enter the system. This isn't like Agricola, where the action spaces are all going to come, but in a random order. This is more like if you tripled or even quadrupled the number of available action spaces, and you only see about a third or a fourth of the action spaces on any given game. And many of these action spaces will be controlled by your opponent. Every time you go visit an opponent's planet, they get a point. This is a big deal. As a consequence, I actually felt a little bit like I felt when playing Crescent Moon, in that there could be this fascinating interplay of pulling various economic levers that affect my opponents, and we create this dynamic 
self-adjusting economy. But in point of fact, it seems so expensive to go outside my own little economic system. So as a result, I'm just left with a boring economic system. Now, this could be overly, just our being overly conservative, but time after time, I would look at my own planets, look at my opponent's planets and say, is it really worth handing my opponent the point to go do that? Nah, I'll stick with what I got. And so you're encouraged to go do boring things over and over again. And that did not feel satisfying remotely. So I didn't get to play it, but I did read the rules. There, It seemed to have this maybe interesting event system that seemed a little like Robinson Crusoe, where you could sort of read the events that were coming up, and then those events would seed into the deck, and then they would come up in a random The event seeding is very reminiscent of Through the Ages, actually. There's uh, a present event deck, and you're seeding for the future events, and the future events, once the present event deck is gone, then, then you... They cycle in. And indeed, a lot of the game seems to be focused on trying to make sure that you see the events on your terms. Because if you don't see the events coming, then it's just going to arbitrarily reward who happens to be uh, ahead on the various galactic order tracks. Remember the galactic orders in Core Worlds where you could build up influence in them and then cash in your influence for unique and interesting powerful effects? No, no, no. Now it's just a function of being high up on a track and then hoping that the right event comes up that rewards you for being high on that track. Problem. In our game, there was no way to influence the events. The only possible way we could have influenced the events was by bleeding points. The only spaces where we could conceivably have interacted with the event deck, and the hero deck, by the way, again, like I said, there's a subset of the economy that, en that enters in every game, would have involved spending literally victory points that we didn't have. Victory point tokens that we could only get if an opponent went and visited one of our economic functions. I mean... We might have been willing to lose the point to mess with events, possibly, but I, for example, didn't have any until the last turn of the game. And so I, I, it was literally closed off to me, that aspect of the game. In a system in Core World's Empires where there were more of an influx of points, maybe if you started with a few points, I looked at the rulebook over and over, and no, you don't start with any points, and indeed, the points you get from conquering planets, and there are planets to be conquered, make no mistake, only score at the end of the game. I would have vastly preferred if you got some sort of immediate bonus when you conquered them, maybe you lost some of it if it got taken away from you or what have you, because then I would have been able to pull all the other levers, because there was all this stuff floating there. I had to deal with the components, I had to deal with the rules complexity, I had to explain how all these things work. But it was all on spec because it never entered the game. And as a consequence, again, I felt like there was this there was this hypothetical interesting economy where I was reacting and interfacing a lot with my opponent's assets. There were all these decks of other effects that I might have been able to deal with, but just never happened. Just never came together. It seemed like a fragile system that didn't really play to its strengths. And insofar as I enjoyed amassing military forces, hurling them against neutral planets, conquering them and making them part of my empire, I was thinking, uh, yeah, but I could do this in Core Worlds, which has more satisfying art, less component creep, actually a faster playing time, which is saying something because Core Worlds ain't exactly fast. And so I really felt like it was a step backwards in a lot of ways. And I was very disappointed by Core Worlds Empires. Yeah, and def definitely less barrier to entry. It's a lot easier to teach someone Core Worlds, the card game, than it is the board game. Like, just getting through that rule book was a chore for me. It was a very substandard rule book. It, was kind it felt like kind of a throwback in that you would have these massive blocks of text. 
And it made me appreciate how a lot of things in terms of layout and editing have really improved in some aspects in recent years, where you try to break things down into bite-sized bits, if for no other reason than you can then find the information later, either through bullet points or numbered lists or what have you. In Core World's Empires, you might have an explanation about how the worker placement phase works, and it's just a massive wall of text. And so if I... I want to remember one of the sub-costs for visiting a planet that's not mine, but one of my opponents is already there. What does that cost again? Do they get it? Does it go to the bank? You have to reread the entire page in order to find the thing. And that definitely did not help with the smoothness of the experience. Well, I hope you'll bear with it one more time when you return and, and let me give it a try. Because I Absolutely. definitely want to at least play it once. And I'm wondering, do you think it would it would... It would do better with more players. It seems as though it wants more players. I think it goes up to six that you can play with. More of the economy would enter the game. However, your share of the economy by default will not increase. So I'm not exactly certain it would encourage more interacting with other players. And honestly, uh, I think the, the, the same length requirements that we apply to Core Worlds would apply to Core Worlds Empires. I do not want to try this with four players or much less five. I couldn't even imagine six unless everybody there had played at least several times and knew exactly what they were doing. And that is Core World Empire. Let's talk about a fun game. Fun game equals Paint the Roses. This is designed by Ben Goldman and put out by North Star Games. And it is a puzzle game. And... I tell you, I didn't, you got to play it once on Tabletop Simulator. I did. I didn't get to play that game. All I did was read the rule book and I couldn't wait for it. And it, and it adds up to everything that I wanted. You are, you have a secret card and it has three different difficulties and it's either going to be, uh, two shapes or two colors or a combination of those two. And then, and the shapes are the, the suits of cards. So heart, diamond, spade, club and four different colors. You have these cards, Mark, and then you get to pick from a pool of four tiles and you're placing it on this board next to other tiles that either have, that have shapes and colors. And then you're putting a number of cubes on the place tile that will equal the number of matches that you have of your card. Hard to explain, but I love, I, it's very enjoyable because of the fact that, and everybody places their cubes because everyone has a card place the tile, then everyone can place their cubes on that tile that you just placed. Then the interesting part is that you must make a guess at someone's card. So you're looking at the cubes, you're looking at the difficulty level of their card, you're trying to make an educated guess on what their card is, and then you're paying the price if you didn't guess correctly. So the queen, you're, it's the sort of score track, and the queen goes faster if you guessed wrong, and then you're going to pass some of these rabbit markers that will add to her movement. So she moves every turn. But if you guess wrong, she'll move double. And it came right down to the last turn. They had a 50-50 guess at my card. And they guessed wrong. And she surpassed our space and lopped off our heads. One of the great things about what Paint the Roses does in terms of a cooperative deduction game is it does something that we've talked about in terms of, of, of other games where cleverly you get to be simultaneously the one with hidden information while trying to suss out everyone else's information. There's not this asymmetry like you would get in code names. We love code names, but there's this weird disconnect between being the code giver and the clue receivers. And it feels like there's this sense of 
literal distance and alienation from the rest of your team sometimes. And it's much more engaging and dynamic and it rewards more elements of your thinking patterns to be constantly guessing as well as giving clues. And when you layer that on top of a very, very simple spatial puzzle, so simple that even I'm able to appreciate it, uh, Paint the Roses gets a lot right. And I'm glad you enjoyed it. I liked it because, like, you know, we're streaming most of our games, we're streaming this, and the listeners could sort of look down on the board and they could make, you know, help us out with guessing, stuff like that. So that was that was fun as well. Well, you can blame them for your loss then. I We 100% did, especially <laughs> Ben. <laughs> Looking forward to playing the physical version. I imagine the big light tiles must add to the experience. Oh, yeah, super clickety-clack. And it's double-layered boards, so they slide, you know, into that, the... Drafting board, you can pass that around. It's this super thick double-layered board as well. Oh, great. Everything about it. Does the box cover have spot UV? Uh, I think so. Good. Otherwise, it would be literally unplayable. Und- unlike Wonderland's War, the game trays are actually super helpful. Because oh, there are. <laughs> because I didn't look into it very much, but there looks as though there's actually a story mode. So what we've played was just the basic game. And now there's all these sort of like theme decks. And I think you sort of go on sort of like a story. Now you need to find this and play. I'm going to look into it more, but it seems very interesting. And all of that stuff's on the bottom. So you don't have to worry about it. It just has this one tray on the top. There it is. Set it up. And you'll be glad to know, Mark, I just chucked everything out of my Wonderland's War box. There are no more game trays, no more uh, chip trays. And it looks kind of funny because it's less than half. I don't know (laughs) how I'm going to store it because literally everything is like in one quarter of the box. But don't you feel unburdened? I do. It's like all you do now is hand everyone their – because I put everyone's components in their actual chip bag. So you just hand them the bags, put the board out. And you're playing. None of this, I go into this box, I go into that box, I go into this tray. Yep. Anyway, so glad I pulled the trigger. Well done. So a recently concluded Kickstarter was for a game called Envelopes of Cash. And we have a pre-production version sent to us by the designer. The designer is Andy Schwartz, who is an antitrust economist who specializes in sports. And Envelopes of Cash is about corruptly recruiting a football team in the American college football system. And there are two things that we absolutely stand for here at So Very Wrong About Games. One of them is satire and board games, and the other is stop trying to make fetch happen. And this absolutely is brilliant satire. You are literally sending runners with corrupt goods in order to bribe promising high school athletes so that they will join your football team. You can corruptly manipulate the NCAA's ranking system. You can undermine the academics of the various people that work for your nominal educational institution. It is fabulous. Uh, The start player is the person who most recently suffered from wage theft. There is just lovely, lovely cynicism and satire threaded throughout the game. The actual game itself of Envelopes of Cash, I can summarize it very, very simple. It's Macau. It's Steffenfeld's Macau. The extent to which it's similar to Macau is really quite aggressive. Now, there's some differences. The draft uh, is a little bit more sophisticated, and I very much appreciated that. It helps smooth out some of the start player issues that Macau often had. But it maintains one of the key elements, which is to say you roll some dice, and you get to draft a couple of dice non-restrictively. Everyone can draft the same ones if they want. And you will get that many resources of that color in that many turns. 
draft a gray five, you'll get five gray resources five turns from now. And the trick is you cannot save resources and everything costs a very specific bundle of resources. And that trade-off in Envelopes of Cash, as well as in Macau, is extremely satisfying because you've got these cards on the one hand that you would really like to get played, but they cost specific combinations of colored resources. And you'd really like to draft that kicker out in South Texas. And that kicker in South Texas really wants to be bribed with yellow Envelopes of Cash. And so you figure, well... I can get the envelopes of cash three turns from now, but I'd really like to go to Oklahoma because I can go bribe that punter right now. Wait, a punter and a kicker are the same thing, right? Sports ball. Uh, the the running back is a running back a a, a position. In it football. is okay. Totally is. You can go bribe that running back in Oklahoma, but then I the, but then my bus is going to be in Oklahoma when I ne- go need to go bribe that Texas kid. Anyway, these are the kind of trade offs that you're involved in, and the timing considerations and the uh, layered on top of the resource management is really really enjoyable and diverting. That on top of the incredibly well executed theme, this isn't one of those things where you read the rule book, chuckle a little bit, and then you go play the man. And then you just go play a game of resource management. It is very transparently obvious that what you are doing is you are running a coach to go grease the palms of some ignorant kid somewhere out in the Midwest. And it is impossible to ignore that. And it's that's that's part of the appeal of the game, quite frankly. So if you hold sport in high reverence, if you think that the purity of sport is such that amateur athletics are sacrosanct, I do not recommend envelopes of cash. If you, on the other hand, are willing to engage in this kind of uh, cynical manipulation or even imagine that hypothetically this kind of cynical manipulation could exist, then I think the theme might really, really add to your enjoyment of envelopes of cash. Because, quite frankly, if you have the choice between doing a, a structurally relatively similar resource manipulation puzzle one of them involving the Portuguese going around and being colonialists in Asia, the other being corruptly undermining college sports, I know which of those two the- two themes I would much rather engage in. Because after all, if there are two things we stand for here at Silver Ring About Games, one of them is anti-colonialism, and the other is stop trying to make fetch happen. So I think that the retheming is marvelously successful. I think this is one of the most successful rethemings I've seen in a very long time. And I had a great deal of fun playing the game as a consequence of that. As it currently stands... The rulebook, although not entirely finalized, does not specifically acknowledge its inspiration from Macau by name. I think that should change. Steffenfeld is credited as an inspiration, but so are a number of other Euro designers. And so I think I think that extra step really needs to be done and said, this, is, this was inspired by Macau. I wanted to decolonize Macau, the board game. And I also wanted to issue a satire and critique of, of a social institution that I know a fair bit about. And I think that that's exactly the kind of thing you should put in a rulebook. You can go late pledge for it now. If you want, you can just... Uh, find envelopes of cash on Kickstarter. I know a number of people who just getting the elevator pitch of the game desperately want to play envelopes of cash. So I I think I'll have uh, several opportunities to play again in the future. More to follow, but I had a great time with Envelopes of Cash by Andy Swartz. Speaking of Kickstarter fulfillment, Fjords. So Fjords first came out in 2005 by Fonz Benno DeLonge. And now Phil Walker-Harding has sort of redeveloped or sort of does, did, done some new design work, and now there is a new copy of Fjords. I never played the original. This game is amazing. It has a very a very uh, Blue Lagoon feel to it. There are two phases to this game where you are building this Carcassonne-type map, mountains, water, plains, 
And while you're building this map, in the first phase, you are putting out these huts. And you you have four of them, and you're putting them out until all of the tiles out of the bag are gone. And you're picking from a pool of four. Once all the tiles are out, and the map is built, and you have your, hopefully, you have your four huts. You didn't wait too long to put them out. Then you are putting out Vikings. The Vikings must go adjacent to another Viking or adjacent to your huts. And now you're sort of blocking off parts of this map. You sort of have to trace along the plain so you can't cross over mountains or across water and sort of, hey, that's my fish style. You're carving up this map and trying to get the most land masses. Played it twice in a row. I really think it's a great game. What player count? We played it at three. So the original was only a two-player game. They have the rules in the book and the pieces in the in the copy that I got to play the original two-player game. So they've opened this up to up to four with all the pieces, and there's this, all these variants at the end. They have these giant, chunky rune stones that will give you all these different special abilities. So all these different variants in the back of the book, we're going to try them out because we really enjoyed our initial play. It's it very much has a feel of an old Euro, you know, those just basic choices. But it's those the first key about, I'd say, maybe five to ten placements of the initial Vikings where you're deciding from your four huts you're going to be blocking people off and where to put pressure, where to force people to play before you cut them off or where you can see you're getting cut off. That part of the game is definitely the main part. The rest of it is sort of, you know, working up to that, I feel. This was put out by Grail Games and they included the original designer's name. Believe it or not, more on that later in the news, I'm sure. Finally for me, played Capital Lux 2 Pocket. So there was a game called Capital Lux. A few years later, there was the follow-up, Capital Lux 2, in two different versions, Pocket, and then Generations. Capital Lux 2 Generations is the big box edition with a smidge more content and a considerable increase in volume. This was designed by Isle of Svensson and Christian Amundsen-Ostby, the latter of whom designed the Escape real-time cooperative dice game, and the pair also have designed a number of very successful Euro games, well, successful from a design perspective, uh, among them the, the Magnificent. And I really think that on the strength of their design output, and in, including my enthusiasm for Capital Lux 2, I'm really going to have to keep an eye open for this Norwegian pair, because I think they've really done some interesting stuff. I spoke a few weeks ago about playing a game with Mr. Beard called Khmer, which was a very, very simple Japanese game. Minor sidebar, a listener reached out and pointed out that in the actual Cambodian language, the word Khmer, which refers to the Cambodian people, isn't pronounced that way, and the only reason why we say Khmer is a legacy of French colonialism. QVR stands on colonialism, and the way the word is actually said is Khmer, so K-H-M-E-R is routinely mispronounced, and we should instead be calling it Khmer. Anyway, moving on, Khmer was a two-player game where you were trying to get the highest score possible while being under the limit set by the tableau in the middle of the table. Capital Lux 2 is very, very similar, except now there are, number one, four suits, and number two, it's a multiplayer game. And so you're constantly playing this dance of trying to make sure you have the highest value out of you on the table, but other people are messing with the ceiling of what the score can be in various suits. I might not even be in green. I might have no interest in green, but I see you've got 11 points in green and the, the limit is currently set at 12. Well... 
If I can knock that limit down to seven, suddenly you're in trouble because at the end of the round, any color where your score exceeds the ceiling gets wiped. And in a three-round game, that can be incredibly considerable. So it's this lovely little bit of brinkmanship where you're constantly trying to be at the highest possible score but without going over. And you're competing with other players, both in terms of determining what the limit's going to be and in terms of what the value of your tableau is. Layered on top of this are a uh, quite impressive variety of special powers for each of the suits that trigger whenever you play to the to the limit in the middle of the table. You play to your own tableau, nothing happens. You play to adjust the limit, well, then the power triggers. And so there's this pressure on other players, this incentive to play to limits that they're not participating in just to trigger the powers sometimes. Anyway, there's a delightful series of tactical trade-offs from round to round about how to manipulate these things and that in turn influences the draft because you draft your hands of cards at the start of the game and this isn't necessarily one of those games where you hate draft very much but it is a game where absolutely knowing what cards other people have can be very very consequential and can influence how you decide to play going forward to determine the jockeying for majorities in various colors I was very very pleased with my experience of Capital X very approachable very quick lots of tense decisions and surprising moments of delight and frustration and I'm looking forward to trying some of the other power combinations because we were playing in the intro baby mode and even in the intro baby mode the powers and abilities were still very cool so more more to follow one hopes on capital lux 2 those are the games we played this week this episode is brought to you by the spring cleaning champions manscaped this season make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below the waist grooming clear out that winter bush with manscaped's lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, I'll just go over by what I was going to say before. Apparently, Age of Steam Deluxe by Martin Wallace is getting reprinted. But because it's getting reprinted, it's no longer designed by Martin Wallace. <laughs> yes, this is part of a very, very long, incredibly complicated, very toxic and acrimonious dispute over the rights of Age of Steam, which goes back a long time. So if you want some Age of Steam, it's on Kickstarter right now. Lots of different new maps. If it's your thing, check that out. Mark, Incognito. I think people know, at least you know, that is one of my favorite games. You are, it's a four, it's a four player only game. You are teamed up with one of the other players, but you don't know which one. So you are trying to deduce who the other spies are because you know who you are and you're always teamed up with the same spy every time. So you find out that that's Madame Zaza, then you know that's your partner. Then you have to find out which actual spy shape there are because there's four different sizes. So you know that you're the short one. You have to find out, oh, they're the tall one. And then you look in the book. This is very summarized. It's not exactly how it goes. But anyway, then you look in the book and you say, okay, if I'm Madame Zaza and he's uh, Finkelbottom and I'm stout and he's tall, then our mission is to do this. And you're doing all of this without talking to anyone else at the table. So you look at your little chart. Okay, that means we have to have the yellow medium guy and the black medium guy on square C. And then you sort of move them there. And then you sort of just all announce, we win <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere. So that's how Incognito is played. It's getting a reprint. So I'm super happy that more people will be able to try it. I've always said it was a great game. And that's that. Incognito. I don't know, man. De decorum sounds right up my alley because at least you get to be passive aggressive about what's going on. David Thompson News. I repeat, David Thompson News. In a few days, so possibly by the time you hear this, on the 12th of May, on GameFound, his next solo game will be available called Resist. All caps with the exclamation point. I won't shout out of deference for our listeners. This is a game about the Maquis fighting against the Franco-fascists in Spain during the Civil War. And... It's a David Thompson game, so I am very much looking forward to it. That is Resist on GameFound on May 12th. So I got to play Point Salad this week, and I had no idea that it is now going to get a Pokemon version, Mark. Are you excited? Really? Yeah. This isn't so, some weird fever dream that got infected to you from some other not, podcast host? It's it's real. This is happening. So Point Salad, I had no idea. I, rem I remember it got some buzz, but it was very interesting. It's uh, the two-sided cards... Uh, you're either grabbing vegetables or you're picking the scoring mechanisms that are on the back so you can sort of see what people are collecting so you can make sure they don't get the points. But we want to make sure that's not getting you negative points or are you picking things that are getting you points? It's this interesting trade-off. Now you get to play it Pokemon style. Yeah, I liked Point Salad. It was enjoyable. So, so Mark, Kingdom Builder. Everyone loves Kingdom Builder, but maybe you didn't get a copy of Kingdom Builder. Well, now they have Kingdom Builder Empire Edition, and you can yeah. get your copy, Mark, 
for only $325. Yes, this was a relatively inexpensive, accessible physical production put out by Donald X. Vaccarino in the aftermath of Dominion. But we don't have relatively economical, reasonably box-sized games anymore. We have $300 Monstrosities Behemoths. We have Castles of Burgundy with Miniatures Edition. We have city-building games with tiles five times larger than they need to be and or a mountain of plastic. Look, why can't things like this be just reserved for your dumb dungeon crawlers? Why do Euro games have to look like dumb dungeon crawlers now? I don't get it. When you get your massive darkness in your kingdom builder, I don't think that redounds to the benefit of either. I, I still don't think it equals up to that. Like I, I was looking over the project, said that that was kind of neat. I remember playing uh, Kingdom Builder a few times on Board Game Arena, and it was it was all right. And then I looked at the price tag, and I just I couldn't I could not believe it. Part of it is I think the hobby is undergoing a, a recalibration, uh, particularly with respect to shipping costs. You know, there's a whole bunch of Sturm und Drang about Simon's uh, Marvel Zombicide shipping costs. Look, at least they're being open and upfront about it now. And, well, as open and upfront, maybe people are asking for refunds. At least there's time to ask for refunds. There's a similar controversy going on about how much... A portal is charging for the shipping for its recent 51st State Master Set and expansions. I've been having that difficulty in the Pledge Manager as well. Things are getting more expensive. It's a rough world out there. All, all the more reason not to have a version of Kingdom Builder that's massive and full of plastic. So that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is the Q&A. Just a reminder, we will be doing Charlie Bravo next week, so if you want to send us your questions, you can still do that. So why don't we just go in our traditional mode of alternation, Walker? Sure thing. I will start off. How has your relationship to board games changed over the years, specifically as content creators? First of all, I reject that slur. You take that back. I know. Rude, right? I know. I know. Despicable. I love it because I can use it as an excuse just to play more games and to buy more games, so it's great for me. (laughs) I've become less of a collector. I've talked about this over the years, but the churn has increased and I have to be a little bit less precious about holding on to games just because I really like them. And so there's a number of games that I really like that I now no longer own. I used to be able to hold on to everything that I thought was, you know, roughly about an eight or higher on BoardGameGeek. Now, not so much. Which designers would you like to see collaborate? I would really like to see David Thompson collaborate with one of the Italian masters like Luciani or Batista or maybe Paolo Mori. I would really like to see uh, Reiner Knizia do a little bit more collaboration. He doesn't tend to do that a whole heck of a lot. I mean, he did Witchstone as a collaboration, but uh, those are the two off the top of my head. That's who I have. I have Reiner Knizia and Eric Lang. I'd like to see those two. Oh my goodness. I know, right? (laughs) That'd be strange. Well, that, that's why Ankh is so brilliant, after all. It feels like it might have been the kind exactly. of thing that Knizia has some work on. Good point, good point. I would like to see him do it. I'd like to have a big Reiner Knizia game come out. That would be cool. Oh, I mean, we just want more Knizia games generally. On that topic, True. what are your top five Knizia games, Walker? Llama Dice. <laughs> really? <laughs> Richstone, Tigris and Euphrates, Quest for Eldorado. In order, mine are Tigers and Euphrates, Blue Moon, Raw, Stevenson's Rocket, and Beowulf the Legend. Oh, no Blue, Lo- no Blue Lagoon, eh? 
Blue Lagoon is great. I will play Blue Lagoon any day of the damn week. Same thing with Through the Desert. Same thing with Samurai. Just on the topic of Reiner Kinsia tile-laying games. They don't crack the top five. He's done that many amazing games. What's what's that co-op one that we just played? Fantastic game as well. Siege of Rundar. Siege of Rundar. Oh, yeah. I'd rather play Llama Dice. (laughs) What? What are some underrated hidden gems that you want to highlight? I talk about Senji every now and again because I think Senji is one of the best troops on the map games and it does brilliant stuff with diplomacy. And I love it when a game has all the mechanics fit together so tightly and Senji does that in spades. Uh, I talked about Beowulf the Legend, which is an underappreciated Knizia game. And then there are some of the more obscure older stuff like La Révolution Française, La Patrie en Danger, which is very, very niche. And, of course, the original Civilization. People talk about Advanced Civ, people talk about Mega Civ, people talk about a whole bunch of Sid Meier stuff, but the original Civ gets not enough love. I only have two. Barony, I always go on about it. I'm going to stream it soon so I can show it to people. Very tight, very chess-like. Love it. And Regicide, what they did with just a standard deck of cards. Such a gem. Great little game. Good call. When are you going to review Tigris and Euphrates? Well, we did. We effectively did when reviewing Yellow and Yangtze. We kind of combined the two. And then when are we going to revector to exclusively cover Kinesia games? Well, I mean, no. Well, you know, there's, you know, root only channels now and there's TI3, TI4 only channels. You know, it's why true. not have a, a, a Kinesia only channel? They'd have a lot more to talk about than those, that's for sure. What are some themes you would like to see more of? I want to see more historical themes that are not about colonialism. And when we see the Zenobia Awards, and indeed some of the winners of the Zenobia Awards, which was primarily about historical or consum themes that were from the perspective of minority underrepresented groups and designed by minority and underrepresented groups primarily, although not exclusively. Some of them are starting to trickle in. They, uh, GMT snapped up a couple of them. One of them is already up on P500. Uh, I, we see far too many stories glorifying the role of the conqueror. We don't see enough stories about resistance. We don't see enough stories about these pre-colonial cultures before the invader came. Like, I don't need to hear more about Pizarro and Cortez. They've had their moments. Their stories are told. I just have written here ones I haven't seen. Like, there's such a plethora of just, you know, stuff we haven't seen yet. Like, you know what I mean? We It's the same old Vikings, zombies, pirates, same things over and over again. Why can't they just pull out of the barrel interesting new stuff? It's true. Relatedly, what are some media properties that you would like to see done as a game or done better? Is this where we're going to go back to Pokemon? Because that's what I've written here as well. (laughs) I mean, sure. Game called Let's Starve Together. I'd love to see a game based off of that as well. I wouldn't mind trying to see some King of Fighters love into into some of the the two-player card battlers. There might be the opportunity to do a really weird Donnie Darko game. Maybe a thoroughly bizarre Hedwig and the Angry Inch game. Those might be nice. Uh, the Lion in Winter, I think, might be good for some sort of historical consum kind of thing. And I do wish that Steven Universe and Scott Pilgrim had slightly better adaptations available. And for what it's worth, there's always room for more Macross. 
Always more macros. Always more macros, yes. What is your snack, drink, music situation while you are gaming? I used to have music on when gaming all the time. I had a gaming group in in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts that ran continuously for about eight years, and we were always had music on in the background. And I miss that uh, largely because the person I game with most now hates music in all its forms, and the only music he does like is bad music anyway. As far as drinks go, we I know a lot of people drink a lot of beer or wine or things like that. Eh, for us, it's just water, usually nothing else. And as far as snacks go, it depends. We, usually, the one thing that I miss is 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 music. Yeah, I don't, I don't, why do people in Boston not, not like music? That's unfortunate. So yeah, I have that. I was down talking well. about you, Walker. <laughs> what me? No, I have water, coffee, no music. And no snacks anymore because we're streaming. And I just I couldn't even bear. You know, I've I've seen people stream and you hear them eating food. It would, oh, it would drive me crazy. So yeah, no more snacks. And music to me is distracting while I'm playing games. Unfortunately, how often do you wear matching outfits? Uh, well, Walker and I have very fundamentally different sartorial approaches to life. We we both wear collars, Mark. Yes, that is true. That is absolutely true. Unlike a lot of other people in our acquaintance who wear almost exclusively t-shirts, we do. We both wear collared shirts. I mostly wear button shirts. Walker usually wears polos. I used to wear more polos, not so much anymore. But no, we do not coordinate our outfits. I may have written here as often as we can. <laughs> <laughs> what are you so very wrong about the most? I'm going to say aesthetics. People are always asking me about some sort of broader aesthetic theory of critique. And uh, I don't have one, and I'm not particularly interested in articulating one. I'm just wrong about thinking others can put in minimal effort. <laughs> Ooh, this, goes for the, this goes for the people that, that can't sign up for the calendar. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Constantly disappointing. Which board games do you feel you are most wrong about? I think it's just mostly lighter games. Like I, I, I'll read the rule book and I'll think it has an interesting hook and I'll say, oh, well, I'll grab this. So hopefully there's more there and there's never more there, Mark. It has that interesting hook and it doesn't bring <laughs> anything else to the table. I don't understand why you always say it as a slur. It's like this game is very, very light. We like a lot of very, very oh, yeah, light no. games. You just said that Llama Dice is one of your top five Knitsy yeah, games. I, I mean, have nothing about light games. I'm just saying I didn't say anything wrong about light games there. I just said oh, that All right. I, I put faith into some lighter games. Okay. When I, like I said, but not all. I, I, there's lots of light games I like. like I'm the I just talked about. I am the most wrong about dumb dungeon crawlers. If Stefan Feld released a game that is like a small bit derivative, I will give him endless crap. I think justifiably, but I will happily play derivative dungeon crawlers uh, pretty often. So long as they move at a good clip and they do something cute and the components are nice, I'll play dumb dungeon crawlers. Which board game is the world most wrong about, Walker? I don't know. Are we, are we, are we slinging slop here? Nemesis. That's what they're most wrong about. Good call. Uh, I, I, yeah, I regret not putting Nemesis now. I put down Twilight Imperium. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, low-hanging fruit. Not really. What are your top three designers? Please stop doing this. I have bloated, unfocused, and unstructured decks, lazy imperialist, colonialist, or orientalist themes, 
and Roland writes with no interaction. Well, our first ones were the same, just worded differently. Not having graduated decks. Yep. Poorly written rule books. Oh, yeah. And play testing in a bubble. Hmm. Yeah, those are, those are difficult nuts to crack, that's for sure. Which mechanisms are most outdated, and why is one of them dice combat where you hit on 5 plus or 6 plus? Um, I, c- I couldn't think of anything that stood out to me. I, th- I think mechanisms, the combat, it's just easy. They want to make, when they don't want combat to bog down their game, it's easy just to roll dice and 5, 6, you hit. I like combat systems that work that way. Yeah. They let you have buckets of dice. You get a nice, even probability curve. It allows for lots of good and easily applied modifiers. Uh, I have no problem with that as a combat system, especially when you see what a lot of the other overcomplicated combat systems exist out there, Nemesis being one of them. The one I've got here is, uh, this isn't so much a mechanism as a dynamic that we keep seeing over and over again. Uh, A and B fight, C wins. Why are we still having this problem? I mean, games have shown a number of different ways to solve this issue. And yet it is still the case, sometimes in Euro games, very often in conflict games, you have these situations where you get into fights and everyone involved in the fight loses and the person who stands aside wins. Sick sick to death of it. Which types of games are missing from the hobby? There are not enough co-opetition games. By this, I do not mean semi-co-op. By this, I mean the same kind of dynamic as Sidereal Confluence, where you're operating... Uh, competitively, but you compete by cooperating better. I think there's lots and lots of room for that. Negotiation games have fallen out of style, and I think cooperation is a great way to do that. Also, meaty dexterity games. Why are there not more meaty dexterity games? That's what I have as well. More gamey dexterity games. Yeah. What older game would you champion for a new edition, Walker? I was trying to think of this, Mark. I came up with Forbidden Stars because it sort of got canned And there was a bunch of extra factions in the works, so I would like to see Forbidden Stars come back with a different theme and lots more factions. Hmm. I wouldn't mind a new edition of Civ with the Western Expansion map. I don't think it would sell well, so I guess I'm not disappointed that they're not going to try. And uh, I think a new edition of Senji might get some traction. And would you change anything in either of those games? Uh, well, for Civ, I'd want new, better artwork. And for Senji, there's uh, a designer-suggested variant for the autumn turn order, which I would suggest being mandatory. Uh, everything else, I'd, I'd pretty much want the same. Yeah, the thing I'd say would be the player count. I would, I would worry that a reprint of Forbidden Stars would push a 5-6 player game, and that would be awful. Oof. Well, on that topic, at what size group do you break into multiple tables? I'd say six is what the number I put here. For me, it's eight. There are lots of really good six and seven player games that never get played because the moment there are six people around the table, everyone's like, well, we're obviously breaking into two groups of three. No. I want to play Quartermaster General. I want to play The Resistance. I want to play Citadel Confluence at high player counts. I want to play Civ. There are lots of great games at that player count. If you say so. <laughs> what is your favorite dexterity game for newish players that are wholly unfamiliar with dexterity games? So I put here, I think if people aren't familiar with dexterity games, it's best not to have them moving around too much right off the beginning. So I put uh, Flick of Faith and Men at Work. So you're not running around the table. You're not, you know, putting on one-man shows. You're not high-fiving strangers. 
you're sitting pretty well in one spot and flicking discs and or stacking stuff. Huh, I don't know if I'd go with uh, Flick of Faith because it's it's got a area majority thing going on in combination with the dexterity. I, I just put Rhino Hero Super Battle, Ice Cool, and if you want to go super minimalistic, some of the old uh, French dexterity games with wood pieces like Mur de Pise or Bosac. I think those are good suggestions for entry-level dexterity games. What IP that you haven't seen in board game form would be an insta-buy for you, Mark? The Dark Tower and Star Control. I have. I was trying to think of something a little original. It was like Death Note. So imagine if Death Note was sort of like a hidden oh, old sure. game. Yeah. And, you know, certain people started dying. And from those people, you had to figure out who the actual person that was holding the book was be would be is. I thought that would work out kind of cool. Sure. So your life depends on beating me in a game. What game do you pick to play, Walker? Junk art, kick your butt. <laughs> I would pick Infinity or Raw. And in either case you would be you you would be very dead, my friend. Mark, what is your favorite historical fact or antidote? I believe it is pronounced anecdote. Oh my goodness, antidote. Mark, your historical antidote. It's, you know, pushing penicillin on your on your foot fungus. Yes, well, anecdote. And I don't know if you've heard about this Walker, but on October 27th 1962, Vasily Arkhipov saved the entire world. I don't know who you're talking about. Yeah. What, what I like you? to talk. What I like to talk about is World War II. The Canadians got all of their vehicles from Britain, and then we modified them. Mark, we liked flamethrowers. We added <laughs> flamethrowers to everything, to a point where the enemy knew the Canadians were coming, and lots of times surrendered so they wouldn't get flamed. Okay. When you roll a six and get a cookie, what cookie do you hope to get? Now, I'd just like to clarify, as the designer of roll a six, win a cookie, that's what expansions are for. You can have different versions, different editions. There's the pirate version, there's the zombie version, there's the Viking version, all with different kinds of cookies. But, Walker, what, what's the cookie you most hope to get? Chocolate salted caramel cookie, Mark. It's the best kind of cookie. Oh, okay. Good call, good call. Uh, for me, it's just uh, you know a good, soft chocolate chip cookie. Mark, how do we decide on which game to review for each episode? Well, it used to be a slightly more whim-based, hey, I want to talk about this thing, or hey, there's this new release or whatever. Well, I've got our things here, Mark. I've got our list from when we first started, right? Remember, we used to weigh them, and if it came out oh, yeah. as an even number, then we would we would review it. <laughs> or has the, dis- has the distributor paid us enough money yet? <laughs> Oh, don't even joke about that. Someone will take it seriously. Is, is, is the game basic enough for me to understand? <laughs> when well, I when well, I drop when I drop it off the roof, Mark, does it land on its lid? If it doesn't land on the lid, then we don't review it. And then we always and then we'd have to turn to page thirteen. And if there wasn't an illustration on page thirteen, then there's no way we're reviewing that game. <laughs> if you had to play a game of Catan, which variants do you consider a must? The one where whoever rolls a seven first wins. <laughs> I, I hear you. I prefer give me give me the choice of any version of Catan. I'll just I'll probably choose the base one. No variants. No expansions. No nothing. There's a certain purity to it, and I don't like Catan, but I do like that version best. Mark, have we ever thought of having a guest on the show? Either 
as a forced acronym segment or as a Patreon content. Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, speaking for myself, you can chime in on this later, of course. I don't know how to do what we do and have most guests on. Here's why. The guests would fall into one of two categories. Either they would be people in the industry or they would be uh, people who comment on the industry like us. People who comment on the industry, I don't know that I have very many interesting things to ask them about. It's like, what's your process? Because I, I don't want to talk about my process. I don't think it's interesting. And when people ask me like what my process is, I come up, I come up empty or they ask me for my theory of review. I don't have one. So there's that. And then there's everyone connected with the industry. I don't know how to have a relationship with people in the industry and still do what we do. When I'm reviewing a game, I don't want to think about that guy I had a nice conversation with a couple weeks ago. I want to think about the game. When I'm reviewing a game from a publisher, I don't want to think about whether we have an ongoing relationship with that publisher. I just want to think about the game. And so, quite frankly, I'm not interested in having anyone on the show, whether it's Reinick, Knizia, Francis Tresham, or God... Uh, because that would complicate things and make me unable to do my job. So there we go. Yeah, I had a fleeting idea of showcasing artists for like Patreon content. I had, you know, uh, contacted a bunch of them and had uh, some brief preliminary stuff. But just it's just time and effort, unfortunately, I that I do not have. What is the single most critical physical game component, either with an in-game function or not? Cool first player marker. It's a must. <laughs> uh, seriously, rule book. Rule book? Yeah, good have, rule book. I, I have Stick the paw. To the bed. Yeah. You got to have the paw in every game. And if someone's taking too long, you give them He's, the big paws token. Yeah, you hit yeah. them in the head with the paw. It's the way it goes. No, I don't think that you're supposed to hit them. Oh. Mark, which designer does the best job at integrating decisions about risk into their games? I mean, shocker, Reiner Knizia. Uh, the way Reiner Knizia does push your luck, the way he does probabilistic analysis, the way he handles risk, 100% Reiner Knizia. That's one of the reasons why Beowulf the Legend is such a brilliant game. It's it's one of the best games of push your luck ever. That and Raw are masterclasses on how to deal with probability and situational probability analysis. Your answer, Walker? No, that was that was the same. I knew you were going to... I knew we were yeah. just talking about Reiner Knizia again. It's, Absolutely. It's like, like you said, he just knows, you know, do I... Do I push for those tiles? Do I do I make a chance whether he has enough reds? All of this stuff. Yep, absolutely. It is the best. So the next few questions I think are mostly for me. Uh, philosopher, uh, favorite philosopher of all time, Immanuel Kant. Lucy, no Lucy from Peanuts. Okay. Philosopher I dislike, Hegel. Yoda. Uh, philosopher that grew on me, Marx. Hypnotoad. Not his, not his, not his economics, but his uh, his early metaphysics, like his uh, theses on Feuerbach, brilliant. Most overrated philosopher, Nietzsche. I have whichever answer Mark gave. That's that, yeah, thanks for the Good for job. the first one. Yep. Most underrated philosopher, Johann Gottlob Fichte. All of them. The greatest of all time. Who slash who is this Kant fellow? I hear so much about. I assume this is a troll. Immanuel Kant is the greatest philosopher in the Western tradition. Walker, on the other hand, thinks it's Lucy. Uh, J'apprends le français, Marc. A-t-il des recommandations de, de podcasts et des chaînes YouTube francophones? Uh, moi, je peux recommander Board Game Duel par Sam et Vince. Walker, how does the price of a game affect how you judge it? Zero. But it does affect whether or not I play it. <laughs> I'm trying to be more conscious of the economic impact of the hobby. But I don't know how successful I am at doing that. 
And that's all the time we have for this session of Omnibus Questions. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at our website, sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. There is still time for you to submit more questions for Omnibus Questions, Charlie Bravo. And we hope to see you again next week. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.